Welcome, everybody, to the Ruby Rose. I'm John Epperson. Today on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. And Darren Bromer. Greetings and salutations. And Valentino Stoll. Hey there. And Valentino, you're you're just joining us for the first time today. Would you maybe just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and why you're so famous? You may know me from my previous time on the show here where I talked about IRBs and journals, but I'm a software engineer at Doximity. It's a social network for doctors and I hack on Ruby and other various stuff all day long. And you are wearing your special Ruby t-shirt today, Valentino. Oh yeah, uh, I made this. <laughs> it's from a past company I worked at where we did uh, Rails as a service and we were advertising, we'll fix your Rails app. It seems super appropriate for a doctor, for a company that does doctor stuff at Ruby at the same time. Funny enough, right. We should take a screenshot of it or something. And then as a as a guest today, we have Fabio Pajela. And if you would correct my pronunciation a little bit. Yeah, you you, you, are, you said correctly. Fabio Pajela, we say in Portuguese. It's like an Italian surname. That's fair. I have to admit that Italian was actually the worst of my diction. I was actually better at French than I was at Italian. Uh, I was a music major, so we had to take dish class or whatever. I don't know why. It just was. It's even close to, to Latin, which I feel like is pretty easy. For me. I don't know how to speak Italian, but my grandparents, they, they know. Yeah, fair enough. I was, anyway, I was just bad at it. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So we have you on the show today to talk about a number of things, but primarily we thought we would talk about debugging processes and, and how you do that. And and you recently uh, wrote an article about that and things and stuff. So let's dive in. Yeah. So let's, from a high level, do you want to take us through your debugging process and then maybe we can we can just start plucking away at it okay uh, first let me say that i am a software engineer i work at wetransfer.com here in the netherlands i'm from brazil but i moved to the netherlands last year with my family and so i was working there and that there, there was a problem that the guys from the platform team told us that there are there were too many requests to our KIM agent. This KIM agent is something in the AWS ecosystem that use uh, we use to provide credentials in the production in production environment. And it's good to say that I, I am a senior engineer. I work with Ruby since 2009 or so, but. I, when I was in Brazil, I worked in a hosting company, so we, we didn't use AWS because we had our own servers. So I'm new in this ecosystem with AWS. And then everything was new for me. So I started trying to understand the problem. We use Epsino, 
and I could see lots of requests to an endpoint that he made, he told that was the problem. And it was like an IP and only this. So if I, I didn't know about this context, because I, I would only see this IP on Epsino and I would imagine, oh, what is this IP? So yeah, so they told me this is a, the IP that the endpoint of AWS, the credentials instance responds to the credentials. Then, okay, then I started because they said, oh, there must be a, like a cache mechanism to not uh, request to, the, to this endpoint every time because these this tokens, the, the credentials, they had a they had a lifetime of a few minutes, so it wasn't it wasn't working as we expected. And then, okay, then then I started the, the investigation and the things that I wrote in my article. And then, so I can start talking about that if you want. Yeah, I can go deeply. Yeah, let's let's establish the story. Or so. Also, thanks for telling us a little bit about yourself. I totally forgot to ask. Oh, okay. um, that's completely on me. So. It sounds like basically what was going on is you had some requests that were like more or less timing out, which is the awesome error that we all love to see because it tells us nothing about what's going on and it scares the bejesus out of us. And we're like, oh no, my day's gone now. I have to figure this thing out. And you had some timeouts and you uh, you happened to figure out that it was an issue with you needed to grab some credentials. And so then now you have to figure out what's up. Maybe it's caching. You have lots of things going through your mind at this point. Yeah, and let me say about the application. This this application, the name is Storm, is our new storage manager. So, because at we transfer, we store a lot of files on S3, and so we have like a, a service to manage this. Because we reuse some piece of uh, files we, we call blocks, so there is like intelligence to to not duplicate files. And so it interacts a lot with AWS. So we with uh, SQS, S3, and then in this one of these endpoints of Storm, uh, we noticed that the response time was higher than we expected. And one of the reasons was maybe uh, actually the the most uh, the thing that it was took longer was this with requests to the AWS endpoint. So we, we need to figure out what was happening and then i started i started to look how the aws sdk works to, to cache the credential the credentials and then so i remember my the first thing so okay i know this ip i need to find where in the gen is requesting this ip because it's not on our uh, source code so i started like to, to grab in this in their source in the source code of the, the gen I use it like a bundle, bundle show to, to see where the, the gem was installed. And then I, I grab it all the directory to search when this IP was used. Then I found a place. Then I started the debugging process. And then when I found it, I, I thought, oh, maybe I can add something here, a, a bind pry. Then I will run the tests on my computer. Then I will get to this point and I, I will be able to debug it and understand what is happening. So then I tried it and I the debugger was never uh, stopped it there. And then after a few interactions, I realized that the, this code works differently in production. Because when we are in our on our laptop, 
in a, lo a local environment, we use a different kind of credentials through AWS. We use like a pair of keys. Uh, so, and then after I, I discovered inside the uh, AWS gem that there are many kinds of credential prof uh, resolvers. There is a name for that. And so I understand that in my machine it worked in a way, in production it worked differently. So I, I wasn't able to debug it in my my laptop on my laptop because the, the code was wasn't executing that path. So okay, then I I needed to, to debug it in production. But how would, would I do it? Because I can't use a debugger in production, I can't run my, my tests there. Yes, you um, can. Yes, you can. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you can. You yes. can debug in production. Yeah, so I find out. I find out a way. You yeah. shouldn't, but you can. Then, at we transfer, I can access uh, the, the the Rails console. Actually, it's not a Rails, but it's uh -huh. the, the console in production because we use Kubernetes and can, I can access them and go to the console. So I used metaprogramming to change the code in the way that I wanted. Because when we use metaprogramming, we are only changing the, the code in my process. I'm not affecting the, the service which is running in production for the clients. So it's not so risky. I, I, can, I can do some things to, to figure out what is happening. Would you, so, uh, would you clarify what you mean here by metaprogramming? Okay. So I discovered like a class inside the AWS gem that I was suspecting that I, I needed to add like a put inside to understand what was happening mm -hmm. and like a method. Then I created a model and, and I used a model prepend to extend this, this class in production. Okay. okay. And then when the, the real code called call this method, it would run my module, my model, because it was like overwriting, overwriting. And then with that, I could uh, add some um, messages to debug it to understand what, what was happening. And then I could uh, see. And then the problem was every time I call a specific method, it was generating a new credentials. And we expected the credentials to be cached. And it wasn't cached. And then I started to, to search on the internet because I would, uh, I, I I tried the AWS docs to see how we should use the the, the client to have this cache working the correct way. And then in the end, I discovered the the when you when you use a client a client of S3 and SQS, every time we instantiate create a new instance of the client, the cache will be it will use it will not use cache because the cache it's saved inside the, the, the instance, the instance of, of, of the client. So I couldn't create a new client every time, every request. And this is what was happening. So there were no cache. So in the end, the solution was very easy. It was like caching the, the client. So we, we chose to use a singleton. This client, it, they, it was instantiated inside a gem then we we have the gem is like specialized in signing lots of s3 urls and so because this is a thing that we do every time on, at we transfer 
And then we changed these uh, gems to cache the, the AWS client. So inside the, the AWS gem, they have like a mechanism to cache the credentials to expire then after 10 or 15 minutes. So it works. So, so you, 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 you can't create lots of instance. You need to re reuse them. So this is what, how we solved. So in the end, the solution was easy, but the, the process to, to find was very difficult because I couldn't, I couldn't understand. I didn't, I didn't know how, how it worked in the beginning. There is a reason why we call caching one of the hard problems in computer science. Yeah. Caching validation, caching validation, not caching. Memoization will always get you. <laughs> in, the, in this case, the memoization was working fine inside well, the, the instance. <laughs> it's just you didn't memoize the client. Uh, memoize the wrong thing, right? I, l I learned a lot from this blog article. And the first, the highlight thing here was just like you. I thought when I've been talking to AWS, there's two passwords on it. There's the access key and then there's the super secret ID key. And you just put those in your, you know, copy and paste them into your source code where they're safe. And then you run and you talk to it and it's no problem. I didn't realize that Amazon had a kind of extra secure system where instead of those credentials safely in the source code where they should be, then it has a way of almost kind of requesting instances on demand. Is that how it works? Yeah, they call the metadata endpoint. And because they say that it's not so safe to, to spread these credentials in lots of servers. So we have this KIM agent, which is something, I don't know exactly the details, but it's something related to Kubernetes. They provide credentials to the, to the pods, to the containers. And then the containers request the credentials from these agents. Uh, it requests, it's a, like an internal network, only reachable by the, the pods. And then we, we get like a, the, the credentials. They are temporary. They, they last like 15 minutes, I think. So inside the AWS gen, there are many credential providers. So one, one of them is the one that you mentioned when we use like the, the keys. So the other one is that, that I mentioned that we use, they, they call instance profile, but there are others. So there are many. Yeah, I, that was really interesting. It's not something I've seen before. And my understanding of it is that you assign the ability to your code to go and get some credentials while yeah. it's running, but you don't explicitly have the credentials it's using. And this is to do with, I think you said it was rotating credentials. Yeah, we, we don't need to rotate credentials by using these in production because when you see the code in production, you, you try, you ask yourself, well, where are the credentials? Because I was used to have the credentials in my, lap, my laptop. Then in production, I couldn't find the credentials there. I, it took me uh, some time to understand how it, it worked. Actually, today I don't know all the details, but I I understand I the piece that I needed to understand to resolve this problem. So this is an uh, inter interesting thing to say, because sometimes we have problems, then we don't know maybe nothing, and then we, we don't know to to know everything. 
we need to know the pieces, then we need to know to fix something. So if you want to know everything, you, you can't. It's almost impossible. It's it's also a tough topic to like it's it's very abstract, right? Like so it's based off of like Amazon's I am stuff, right? Yeah. Which is basically like, hey, I want to give somebody a role, more or less, right? And it's it's also like specific to Kubernetes here in this case, which is like, hey, I have this one Kubernetes pod. It's going to need credentials that just belong to this pod that yeah. allow it to do the things that it needs to do. Yeah, that's it. This is how it works. So you did the the tried and true, test it out locally, and you're like, huh, that's weird. It doesn't work at all locally. <laughs> Can't get it going. And then you like dug down and you were like, oh, well, that's why. It's because it works differently in production. So uh, then you had to jump into your production or or staging environment or something that runs like production at least. And monkey patch. Well, I guess you weren't monkey patching because you were pretending, but yeah, insert some code so that you could finally debug or whatever. And then you figured out what the problem is and got it going. So isn't prepending the same thing as monkey patching? It is not. Yeah, oh, but, it's, but it's, go it's follow a you. way. I think it is a way to do monkey patch. Before I said metaprogramming, but the correct word is uh, monkey patch. I said it wrongly. But we can overwrite a, cl a class for monkey patching, I think. And we can also use prepend. I almost uh, I prefer using prepend because if something happens in the stack trace, we will note that there is another level of class, another in the front. This, this mention of your uh, method logging, something I'm really interested in because I, I remember the there was a Rails conf recently on the case of the bad clone where they shed some light on basically making a, a monkey patch like you had on object as an example to just log any instance that this method gets called so that you have the stack trace in a in a isolated context. Uh, I'm curious if you made your your own kind of prepended module for that or if you relied on another library. No, I, I use it only Ruby. I like copied the the, the, the name of the class and the methods of the AWS gen. And I created a model by myself, only use Ruby. And then I use a prepend in the end to, to put this in the front of the original implementation. Of, and I did that in the IRB, the Ruby console. I, I didn't deploy a new version with that. It's funny because I know I have, I've done something very similar in the past too, right? Where you're trying to find out what what is calling a particular method. And sometimes it helps to just mix in something and say, okay, anytime this method gets called, log it and then call the whatever called me kind of thing. It's something I would, I was surprised Ruby didn't have natively where you could kind of attach something to a method call. Yeah, that's a good call out. And actually, yeah, I, I really enjoyed your article also and and us you walking us through it. I think it's extremely valuable and it's it's good to think about. I think our mental model of where we spend time, I think engineers often think we spend about 80% of our time writing code, maybe 10% reading code, maybe the other 10% in meetings. And I think in reality, we probably spend about 80% of our time debugging, uh, yeah. <laughs> debugging or reading existing code. So these are great things to do or to focus on. But I guess my my thought is there has to be an easier way there should like it's, we really ideally you shouldn't have to go through seemingly so much trouble to f use gems like and i think it boils down to observability 
if you're using a gem and you're not able to, or, or any piece of code, and you're not able to observe what's going on, like that's, that's really the problem. You know, once you are, once there are metrics, whether that be in the form of data points in CloudWatch, let's say, or log statements, you know, there are nice tools to be able to search occurrences over time in log files, like then the pro then the debugging gets to be a lot easier. But anyway, that was something that struck me is like, man, this is really, really cool and interesting. And it's just, it's, but it's, but it's so complicated. Like what, what are some of the takeaways that you, from going through this, this <laughs> adventure and uh, doing your debugging and, and the monkey patch or meta programming? Like, is it the kind of built in, I guess, callbacks or logging, if you will, that Valentino mentioned, or what do you, what do you think? The monkey patch, I use it to some messages, some puts to understand the flow that was executing in production. And it, it helped me to understand what was happening. But yeah, I, I want to say about the article that I, that I wrote. It was very hard to, to write. And, and I, I wrote because people that we transferred, they, they told me, oh, you, you need to write a blog post about it because it was impressive the way that you debugged the, the things you, how did the way you did. And so I, when I started, it was difficult to like to tell the uh, the story because I would like to give all the details to 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 tell exactly how I, I did it. And then it started to find like in Slack the me the message that I sent on on GitHub, the issues, the the uh, images that I printed, so I, I could give a lot of details to the person. And especially for me today. If I need to remember something about it, I go to the article and then I, I have all the information there and help help me as well. And I think it would be easier if I found uh, some information about the, the the result that I that we have in the end. Because when you see the AWS docs, they don't mention about uh, about using the same instance of the client. I think I, I think I, I found it only in the Java SDK uh, docs, but not in the Ruby docs, saying that you need to reuse the, the client because the like the cache, the credential the credentials cache is stored inside. So actually it's something that I, I can do. I can try to create an issue there or maybe a pull request. I don't know if they accept a pull request. But I think this piece of information would help many people. And I would like talk talking about debug. When when I started to to debug it, I tried. I always try to reproduce the things in my computer it's, uh, first, and I try to reproduce to create a test. Then I can run the the problem because when I can do it, I can use pry by bug, which is like my favorite tool to debug. Because I can run the next command, I can use the step in, the up and down. There are many commands that I can use to navigate through the stack trace, and it help, helps me a lot to understand the, the flow. So, but in this case, it wasn't possible because I couldn't reproduce it on my laptop. But it, this is my first approach, usually. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, shoot, I just want to like put a plus one in there. So way back in the day before Bybug was around. It, we had Pry, but and there was a Pry debugger gem, if I recall correctly. It was was cool because you got a debugger 
but there was some there was some weirdness to it and stuff like that. Then Bybug came out and debugging with Pry is amazing now. It's it's just works. It's great. So that's my plus one. Yeah, and I definitely recommend people to try the, the commands uh, up, especially the command up. I don't know if you ever use it because you can stop in a piece of code, then you 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 type up, then it goes up in the stack trace. So you you can see where how the code reached at this at this point. So it's it's like a step back. So it's very very cool. It helps a lot. So you can undo mistakes. Yeah, it, actually, it, it does not undo, but it goes up in the stack trace. Actually, there is a, a common truth to go back. But yeah, it's kind of. That's really also, cool. I, n- I never knew that existed in Prime. Yeah. You can do just backtrace? Yeah, back backtrace. Yeah. That'll just you, print out the whole thing as well. Yeah. But if you use the command up, it will return to the to the previous uh, frame. This this they, they say frame, which is one level above in the or below. In the Will trace. it change the context as well? Yeah, so all the variables are, are reset yeah. in that step. Yeah, you can inspect the vari- the variables. It's very cool. I didn't know about pry by bug at all. I'd never used this. I used pry. I didn't didn't know this existed. Recently, I've taken to running the Ruby debugger in VS Code, and this has been my amazing step forward in the last few months that I can actually get a GUI again after years of Vim keyhole coding. But yeah, ByBug is like a kind of interactive bug debugger. So instead of just kind of copy-pasting put S embedded string, you know, kind of loads of loads of strings everywhere, you can kind of just jump in and see it without uh, having needing to have a complete debug environment it's amazing no didn't know it it didn't, awesome. never even heard of it. how do you guys find out about this stuff actually a few years ago i was debugging like a lot and i, I thought i i wasn't like so efficient in this process then i started to study more i, I thought I, I want to understand more how these two works because i need to use everything that i can so i i tried like all the comments that we have in the pry and by bug gen actually i use the pry by bug which is like a mix of pry gen and the by bug gen so i think it's the best one and then these comments the up comments there is another one the finish you because the finish work works like this imagine you use the comment step the step is like step in when you go into a method and you think oh i, I don't need to i don't want to see this all this method so you can use the finish. It will finish the execution of the current method and come back to the previous one. So it helps a lot as well. And so I discovered these methods from the by from by bug. And then I, I actually I, I did a presentation in the RubyConf Brazil 2014. I don't I don't know exactly. I don't remember. And it was it was very nice. People liked the the presentation. I'll add this into the picks later, but a good way to find out about this kind of stuff, Luke, is I've been reading Ruby Weekly for forever now. It's just every week. It just comes out once a week. I spend half of my Wednesday <laughs> just reading articles and learning new stuff. And maybe not half, but probably at least a couple hours, right? Just reading through the things that come in. And I do that every week and I've done it every week for a really long time so i don't i don't know everything and there's plenty of stuff that comes through that just goes over my head right 
But the fact is, I'm legitimately just reading stuff every week. And so I, I think that doing that, yeah, helps you find out about stuff. You'll catch some of it. I'll catch different stuff. And then we'll hop on the show and you'll tell me about the cool stuff that you found. And I'll tell you about the cool stuff I found. Yeah, talking about cool stuff, there is a new debugger. I tried, but I like private bug so much that I am not using. The name is Ruby Ruby Jart. It's a very I don't know if you ever Can you spell that in chat. J I J A R D. We'll put a link into that in the show notes. Yeah. Isn't and it just another Ruby debugger? I think that's yeah, what the acronym is. Yeah. Yeah. The interface is very very cool. It's like have you ever used a Tick, the client, the Git client in command line. So it's like similar. It shows like the variables, the values, the point that you are, the debugger is running. It shows like uh, all the commands that you can run. It's very, very nice. But I was used to using the private bug and then I come back. I'm going to release a new library called yard yet another ruby debugger i'm just gonna it's just gonna be an alias for put string <laughs> it won't conflict with yard the ruby doc thing <laughs> yeah we'll just open up documentation yeah, yeah i need a better acronym it's, I, you're right but i guess i don't know luke maybe you're in my camp based on your previous comment but i tend to debug using put string until it just doesn't work so like i don't know Maybe I'm one of those people who just VI command line and put string are in my toolbox. No, I start um, with puts. I start with puts. And then, well, I, that's actually not true. The first thing that I do is a binding.pry if I can get one easily. Then I go to puts statements combined with getting a binding.pry somewhere, right? So I want to know, put statements up here to like tell me what I did. And then, okay, so now I know about my past state. And then now I'm in my REPL, right? And then I can compare with the variables that I have here, right? So I don't know. I guess maybe maybe I'm technically a mix, but yeah, no, I, I think that's a good mix. I think the I think the puts helps you narrow down where the problem is quickly, and then yeah, then you can use the other tools in the toolbox. Yep. I almost always want a REPL, but I I never use just a REPL. Pretty much, I almost always am putting some stuff up here in order to know what stuff I did before I got to the place. There is another kind of technique that I use sometimes. It's not adding puts, but it's adding by adding raise. So, for example, I know there is the problem is it's like here. So I add a raise to raise an exception, and then I run all the the tests to see what tests will raise the exception. So I will discover uh, which which tests are running the, at this point. When I find a test, then I change the raise by by any price. Then I can run the test and debug uh, with, with uh, by book. I have one app that I've used that technique with. It wasn't a real, it wasn't a Ruby app at all. It was a React Native app or whatever, and I found it easier to raise exceptions and have it send messages to my my exception logging service or whatever. Yeah, I haven't done it in a Ruby thing, and I think that. I would argue that's probably because I work on apps where the test suites take longer than a half hour to run, oh, yeah. which is a completely different conversation entirely. Yeah, this is not the case in this application that I mentioned because it is a new application and the tests run 30 seconds, I think. Yeah, I, I could see that being a workable technique for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to Have extend on the, on the using use of put string and log statements in general, if you are developing or operating on AWS, 
I mean, the other platforms have similar tools, but the CloudWatch Logs Insights, I remember when that was first released, it's, it's, it was so nice to have. So if I'm logging something in my you know, app, in my container, my Ruby code, where, whatever it is, I can very easily use the CloudWatch Insights to search for occurrences of some string pattern over time. And it'll give you right away, it gives you the graph. And so like Fabio, in your case, once you, once you have the logging in place, once you have some visibility to when it's creating a new client or making a new, a new call, you get a, a bar graph and you can easily see like, oh, okay, the volume is much higher than I thought it would be, or it peaks or dips it when you might not expect. But it's a super powerful tool if you are running on AWS and and you do heavily, even if you, there's a lot of use cases for it, but Insights is very handy to have. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yes, yeah. actually we use Epsino. And we have lots of information there. So we, we could see this uh, request that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode and the volume, the throughput, the, the meantime. So the information, and actually in the end, when the problem was solved, we, we could, we noticed the decrease of the throughput to this endpoint. And this was the result that we was expecting. And yeah, so this helped. This helped a lot. You know, it's interesting. We were talking at the beginning of the of the episode about cache invalidation being one of the hard problems, and you know that kind of came into play here. Memoization, maybe maybe that's not a misnomer, or maybe that's misinterpreted a little bit because essentially, you know, your classes were getting instantiated more often than you thought, and so you know what is what is programming? Well, it's essentially things that we we store data in memory and we have instructions that act against it. So essentially saying cache invalidation is a difficult problem is almost like saying half of computing is challenging because whether we're keeping an object on the stack or whether we are having to re reinstantiate it, that was the cause here. But uh, Thank you, as, as I think about it more, yeah, that, that, so basically it's saying half of programming is hard. <laughs> well, I, I think about it in this case, right? So this is a cache invalidation problem. This is a, this is a problem where you were invalidating your cache all the time, accidentally, right? Yeah. Right. But yeah, no, I thanks, Darren, for bringing this up. I was legitimately wanting to go on this train too, right? I, the reason why I like to bring it up jokingly all the time is because I legitimately think that you can, you can, the other guy can say whatever they want. You cannot pay attention. You can probably bring up caching validation as being a problem. I just shortened it to caching, obviously. And it is like almost all the time true. And it was almost always doing that. I can say it was when we, we fixed the, this problem, this problem was inside two gems. One of the gems is the, the gem that signs S3 URLs, is a gem that we built at we transfer. And the other gem is a skewer, is a, is a gem to deal with background jobs using AWS SQS. And then when we fixed this problem inside of these gens, we released a new version. All of other uh, services that use this gen started to use less, to make less requests to the AWS endpoint. So the platform team told us, oh, that, that, that was a great, great work. 
because now the the number of requests decreases a lot in the in the agents. Yeah. So it helped the community as well because these gems are open source and people use everywhere. Yeah, one way to av- to try to avoid things like this would be you know don't cache don't cache unless you absolutely have to. So that that's one thing I will say. I have had some insights. So we were talking about authentication. So the like the authentication service in AWS, I think is probably, I don't remember exact numbers. They probably wouldn't want me to share them even if I did remember them, but that's one of the highest volume services there is. Like literally, if there wasn't cash involved, I think probably the service would fall over just the sheer, the sheer number. So you really can't avoid it there. But going back to kind of the theoretical discussion, I mean, this is almost an argument for a lot of functional programming is becoming more and more popular as a way to avoid these kind of issues. I mean, from a purist perspective, functional programming doesn't really cache much at all because in general, I can always call the function with the same parameters and I'm always going to get back the same answer. You know, there's very little that's cached. From a pragmatic perspective, yeah, obviously we have to remember data somewhere. (laughs) But uh, to the extent that you can reduce it, you know, maybe that is, you can see then the argument for why that would help, that would lead to less error prone or less bug, fewer bugs in your code. I'm having a hard time saying that in English, but I think you know what I mean. I mean, so, okay, so, so jumping in, this is my favorite topic so the the thing with like functional and oop stuff right like functional is really good at calculating stuff and oop is really good at storing state right and and one of the things that i was going to actually bring up before before you jumped in here first is like you know when you think about it like when we store values and variables what are we doing we're caching them for later right like literally the one of the very basic things that we do putting stuff in registers storing stuff in variables right like those are all caching right like because recalculating everything every freaking second is like it's expensive right so like one of the things that like i feel like is like the the whole functional versus oop argument just kind of like blows over and doesn't even talking about doesn't even talk about is there are appropriate times to calculate stuff and there are appropriate times to cache stuff and functional programming really good at calculating stuff right oop very good at storing state right so i feel like one of the awesome things about Ruby, and this is why this becomes my favorite topic, is because we get to do both. We have first-class uh, functional style programming in our language. We have first-class OOP style language, right? Use OOP stuff when you want to cache stuff, right? Create an object, memoize the heck out of it, right? Never never recalculate it again. Just cache it all, right? It's great. Invalidate it when you need it, right? Obviously, I'm like just glossing over stuff as if this is easy, and we just discussed the fact that it's not. But like, that's exactly use use your tools like for what they're good at. Like, I am a huge proponent of mixing OOP with with functional style. I think that if you if you think about the problem that you're working on, and you're like, hmm, this thing is like a process, right? Something that needs to be calculated. Functional style, throw it on there. It'll be right. If the, if I'm storing state for later for some reason, or if I'm abstracting state from my database, which is what models are, right? OOP all the way, right? Like, I don't know. That's that's my thing. That's what yeah. I think. No, I, I totally agree. You want to use the right tool for the job. Like if you really are in love with one tool or another and you want to use it everywhere, you're probably going to have challenges at some point. So for example, active models, like you said, it's inherently storing state so that I can mutate it and update my database. That would be probably not very productive to make that a functional paradigm. It just it, it just wouldn't make sense. So without a doubt. 
I think that the functional paradigm is probably underused. Like I think we could shift the go on the spectrum a little bit more towards that, look for more opportunities to do it. But totally agree with you. you there, there are places for each. I think one of the hard parts about Ruby is there, there's no real like global state. So if, for example, in one of these clients, you w- I, I know I, I find this hard all the time when you're starting up a Rails app and you want to say share a S3 client connection across the app or a Redis connection, uh, you often have initializer that boots up with the app and then is cached for the lifetime of the instance of that particular app running, right? If you share that across servers, it'll be broken up across those servers. So there's no like kind of shared global state within Ruby. It's kind of like virtualized. So the, there, there's almost no way to, uh, and, and maybe it's just the wrong way to do it, but there's no way to kind of cache across objects so that you do have kind of a global state for a particular thing that you're trying to make sure doesn't change over the lifetime of a particular run. You can use global variables. A really common case for this is you probably do this with Redis, right? right. So if you use Sidekick or something, you probably have like a global variable dollar sign Redis, right? Maybe you don't, but you've probably seen it. It's really common for you to instantiate one Redis connection, right? Store it in that Redis variable and then like let your Sidekick connect to it. And then maybe if you like use Redis also for like your caching or something, maybe you share it. Or maybe you choose later, you're like, oh, I shouldn't share my caching server with, you know, because I want a different Redis technique to be used. Redis, like, to disk. Uh, Redis will will disk out every once in a while, right? So you want a different, whether it's uh, whatever, get rid of the last thing or the oldest thing, right, for caching, which is normal. But, like, for Psychic, you don't want that strategy. Uh, anyway, so you might split it out later, but it's it's not uncommon for you to share connection i was gonna say something similar like yeah sometimes i put a dollar sign in front of the variable and then i feel guilty about it yeah you do you can have a global variable you can also create a singleton um yeah well, i was gonna get i was gonna circle back to fabia's article here uh in the kind of dangers of using singleton because it kind of mentions it's not necessarily thread safe to have a singleton because it can change across yeah. instances I, I would mention uh, that because we we were not sure uh, about the AWS uh, gems if they were thread safe. So one one of the options was using a connection pool, and in that way we it, it would the, the same connection would be used for one more than one instance instance not the you know we reuse the the connection and but then we found that the AWS gen is thread safe then we chose to use the singleton. Because when you are not sure, it's better using the gem connection pool and providing as a pool, which will create, like you normally usually set a pool size, for example, 10, 10 connections. It will create 10 and it will manage these connections to, for those who need to use. I mean, what does thread safe really mean? When people say Fred safe, what do they what do they mean? What's going to happen? What's the worst that can happen? It's surely it'll be okay. I mean, we just connected AWS. You're fine. I think, for example, we use Puma. They are threads. We can use Sidekick, which use threads as well. And these single toll clients, they can be shared across these threads, and they can if if the client is not thread safe. They can like send commands to the 
to the dependence at the same time and mix uh, re uh, requests and re re response so it can damage <laughs> things. So, yeah, I think this is the problem that we, we, we can face if it's not thread safe. I think thread safe means that there exists a category of bugs that for which we can actually blame or not blame the gem. <laughs> we have to look directly in the mirror. I think that's what thread safe means. Yeah. I like that one. I'm buying it now. Was, my my explanation would have been way more complicated. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think of the simplest possible definition, and that's what came to mind. Good definition. Now it works. And uh, I think a good point that, that was just brought up here, right? Like to kind of like tie back into our conversation is just the, like, yeah, the connection pool, right? Like also another option. I, like everything, right? Like you need to evaluate whether whether global variable is the right thing for you, a singleton is right. And they all have different cons and pros and cons or whatever. So you just kind of got to pick what makes sense. This is like what I like to call like having multiple tools in your in your toolkit, right? Like you, it's good to have multiple tools and to be able to like draw on them for different scenarios because some of the things that we call anti-patterns are actually the correct pattern for use in certain particular cases. They just, we call them anti-patterns because you should not use them most of the time. So singletons and global variables are great examples of this, but they actually are good choices in a select, very few small number of cases. Definition of anti-pattern. There exists someone in the world who once had a problem doing it that way. <laughs> okay, that, that one was maybe a little bit. That's, little, that's a little unfair. That's, that's a bit much, yeah, sorry. No, like, anti-pattern means most people have problems when they use the pattern. And, but there are, but the reason why the, these patterns exist and why they're still taught and things like that is because there is some use case out there for which it is the right pattern. It's the 80-20 rule. Yeah. Mo most of patterns are things you want to do most of the time, unless you find a compelling, a compelling reason to do it a different way. I can tell a problem that we discovered last week with this singleton because the, the, these gens, they create the, the instance stores inside of it in the singleton. And then something was happening in the state, and then the credential started to be invalid, and AWS started to return uh, bad credentials. And, and because the credentials were cached inside the, the gen, we needed to restart the service suddenly. And we didn't understand what was happening. And so I created a patch in these gems to release the, the singleton, the, the cache, when these kind of exceptions are raised, because it was like a, it, exceptions from AWS, and I could rescue them and release the, the, the client. So this is one example of problem that it can happen with this approach. Yeah. Fabio, I had a question about kind of your process debugging. If there was a tool or library or service or something that you wish you had available uh, while you're going through all of this, especially with like a production level issue where you can only reproduce it in production. Is there something you wish that you had available to you? Yes, there is. I, I just remember that because sometimes it's very difficult to understand the, the flow of the, the code because there are lots of levels and you start in your source code, then it goes to a gen, to another gen, to another gen. And it pass variables, it changes state, and it would be great if I had like a, something to like to click record, and then I, I execute the the, the command, and it records all the the, the message that's 
passing through the, state, the levels. And then in the end, I could like press play and see what happened. It's like it's different than using a debugger. Uh, it's like a, a sequence diagram. When you see the interactions, you see the meshes going to the other objects. You know, it will be great. I'm trying to think of a parallel, like of the full story service. Have you ever used that for user experience? It's a service that lets you replay exactly what the user did for a particular bug. So when an exception is raised, it gives you that recording history of the user's experience. It would, it would almost be nice to have that parallel on a systems level. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I kind of like the idea of uh, dropping like state and comments in your code. I was imagining that. I was like, that that seems super useful. I saw that. Talking about comments, I that there is something that I would like to, to mention. When we fixed this problem, it was, as I said, the, the fix was simple, to only to create a singleton. But for those who would see the implementation, wouldn't understand why we did that, that thing. So I think it is important. And I learned that working with my team, the team that I'm working on, and to add comments explaining why you did that thing. Because you, you don't need to add comments to explain what the code does. Because you can see the code, you, you can understand what are the inputs, sometimes the output. But usually it's difficult to understand why. So I, my suggestion is you add comments explaining why. Motivation, yep. Yeah. It's kind of funny because there used to be the saying to remove comments and add a, a tracker story so that you don't, just leave to-do comments everywhere. And now it seems people are coming back to the idea of uh, it would be nice to have a comment in here. I like to put them in the git commits. Like, I I feel like, so for me, motivation is like, so I always do like 80 character, right, description, right, like of what you did. But then like, I skip a line and then like I do hyphens and I'm like, if I did any extra things for some reason, put those in there. But then I'm motivation, like that's like a major thing for me to put in there. Like, why the heck did I bother to make this change at all? Um, if it was like a bug fix, like maybe you don't necessarily need that, right? Like you can make the judgment call on whether, but I don't know. I'm, I'm a big fan of putting in Git commits. Yeah, but I, I think it's the same thing. You're commenting and it's stuck with the Git repo. So it's like right there. It's not in a separate thing like making a ticket would do. Yeah. I you do have to look further because you have to look at the history, I guess. Most of yeah. my to-dos actually end up being won't do's. And I usually know if I'm going to do them or not, but a number of question marks next to the to-do comment. And it usually looks like something, you know, to-do, check if I need to do this, question mark, question mark. And I, I just came back to one last night, that this morning, that was like kind of four years old. Is there a is there something I can kind of, instead of typing to-do, you know, probably won't do, is a bit long, won't do is there is there a is there a, like a kind of another word for for a to do which you should do but you know you never will might do mm. <laughs> i'm with you I, after you go back to your code like okay well before we do this update let's grep for any to do's and generally speaking what happens is if there's still the to do comment in there you end up taking it out because it became obe it's no it's no longer relevant if it's still sitting there <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. My my big thing is like uh, I often find that the comments right like never get updated with the code, so deleted right because obviously that commenting wasn't very helpful. But but that's not always the case. I don't know. I'm not anti comments, but I I don't know. People don't 
typically do a good job of keeping the comments up with the code at the same time. I mean, there's a reason why we uh, why we like the principle of dry, right? Change things in one place because trying to keep two things in sync is difficult, but it can be done. Yeah, yeah one thing I've started doing is adding uh, trailer information. I don't know if anybody has seen, but Git added a feature that allows you to add kind of a tagging uh, comment section to each commit so that you can then search on those logs for particular tags and see kind of the footnotes of that commit and search across it. It's kind of neat. This is trailer as in park. Yes, sir. No, I have not heard of that. Is this, I mean, you've got your first line if you commit, which John says people get angry if you go over 80 characters. Should clearly be 96 characters, but 80 it is. Then you've got the the next bit where you write what you actually did. So where does the trailer go? So it's almost like at the, if you've ever squashed commits, they'll show you that kind of commented squashed commits section below that. It's almost underneath that. And if you do like a short log, get short log, you'll be able to see the the groups of those different trailer information uh, in a nice little display. It's it's pretty cool. And and what do you use it for? Mostly tagging stuff and tag it like, for example, if you're using a tracker to keep track of this in a separate application, you'd have a URL for that. So you can add that to a particular trailer group. Or if you're trying to track a feature across commits, you can tag it with that particular feature and then trace that through your Git log. There, there are things that read it, just like, just like everybody by sort of default, right? Like only grabs the top line of your Git commit message, right? Right. Like it's just, there's a standard <laughs> of basically like putting the stuff at the bottom of your commit that like certain things can read. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really have never really used a lot of trailer commits. It's nice if you automate it, <laughs> then you don't have to worry about it. But yeah, when you were when you posted this, I legitimately just looked up like a couple of things, and I saw like a couple, just like you were saying, there's like a couple apps out there, and I'll, I'll I'll grab one of the links, but like a couple apps out there that like use trailer commits for like for example, this one like creates a commit log, which I thought was actually an interesting way to use it. And then when you were saying that you use it to track features across, I I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot more sense than putting my Jira ticket number at the very beginning of my commit message, right? For example. Yep. Especially when I have a whole bunch of tickets. I mean, you could do that for ordering reasons, but like when you're using it just to track, then you end up with a bunch of commits with the same first 10 digits. Yeah, it's especially useful for like attaching it to merge commits where you don't want all the other commits to kind of affect that one particular impact on the code base. You can add the trailer information just to that. That way you can see just that in your log history of where that was introduced. There we go. I found the link. Cool. Well, do we have any other things that we wanted to address before we like hop into picks? Any questions that have not been said? I would like to mention a gen we use. The, the name is Undercover. It, it verifies when, when we create a pull request, when the CI runs, it verifies if all the the code is covered by uh, the new code is covered by tests so it helps us to prevent adding bugs because we didn't create tests because it's different it's, it's, it's difficult to have all the code covered by tests but we, we can start gradually for example ins- to ensure that all new code are covered by tests so undercover helps with that 
this is something we use then I recommend. Definitely. I'm down. Okay. So I did have, I had one more thing that I wanted to, to think, uh, it was a comment that you said at the very beginning, Luke. And, uh, I just wanted to bring it up. You were just like, Hey, like everyone does, like I store my, my keys in my code base and just wanted to remind everyone. I don't think Luke was suggesting that we store AWS keys in our code. Luckily, it's the best place for them. <laughs> what happens if you lose your keys? If I lose oh. the keys to my car, that's a big deal. Imagine yes. losing the keys to my bucket. Luckily, Git will tell you. GitHub will tell you that you are storing your code in plain text, or that you're storing your keys in plain text in your in your code base. But and then you'll need to change them. Uh, you can use Rails credentials if you're doing a Rails app, or you can use a variety of other ways. <laughs> <laughs> half PSA slash half half just giving you just ribbing you Luke it's the only way to learn John it's the only way to learn <sighs> and thanks to Fabio's work changing those keys won't bring down production yes yes and thank you AWS for forgiving my $30,000 in spend that somebody else who stole my keys at one time spent on my account alright should we roll into picks <laughs> yep alrighty Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Luke, do you want to start us off this week? Oh, well, last week we introduced uh, Jeremy Evans, and I've been working my way through his online presentations. And that man's got a back catalog. Let me tell you, there's some top-notch stuff in there. And one of the really interesting things I went through was his presentation on the evolution of the SQL gem. And a lot of that stuff, I think he gave a presentation in 2012, and a lot of that stuff has been very influential on a lot of libraries that come since, and his book's out. I'm also going to pick Dave, even though he's, he's, he's gone off this week. Um, he did have a good episode out on driftingruby.com on cryptocurrency. If you want to use your uh, Rails app to uh, take advantage of the uh, crypto market, which is either going through the roof or falling rapidly, depending on what time you listen to this broadcast, then he's got a great little episode on how to take in payments through the Coinbase API. My own Coinbase profile is has lost so much money that Coinbase have stopped telling me how much I'd lost. It was it got down to about kind of 70% of my investment, and then they just decided it was too embarrassing and I stopped putting it on the page. I'm convinced there's an if statement on that view, which is if investor is terrible, do not show them how much money they lost. And my last pick this week is unfortunately on the Amazon.co.uk uh, store because I want to get the right one. But we had a big storm. This week, we had a lightning strike and a production server, which I really, really needed to put some time to work in, was taken out, as long with the power for the whole site. 
And this is a site about kind of 30 miles from where I live. So you can't just hop in the car. It's a big deal. And uh, what do you know? The Amazon UPS that I bought worked. It correctly diagnosed the power outage, protected me from surges, uh, powered the server down after its seven minutes of life, and it came back up and I completed my little project. So highly recommended. Now, the trick is to buy this exact model because there are two, and one of them I cannot get to talk to Linux at all. The model that I I found works really well, really easy to set up, but the other one I've not found any way at all to get it to talk to a server, so I can't recommend it. That's my final pick. Very cheap, kind of 120 bucks, Amazon UPS. Awesome. Darren, you got something for us today? Definitely, yeah. Real, real quick, adding to the, the cryptocurrency, the Coinbase API is great. It's got a free API that you can use to get prices. Of course, if you want to manage your own portfolio, like it sounds like Luke is, you do create an account with them. But uh, it's very nice. Also, I will add that if you're relatively new to the cryptocurrency space, like it's, let's say you started investing within the last three or four months, don't worry. The graphs do eventually go up. They don't just always go down. So hang in there. So my pick for this week, I'm going to go outside of the technology, outside of the technology space. I'm saying I'm, I'm actually crying inside when I talk about that, but, but yeah, it, it'll go back up. So my pick is outside the technology space. It's a show. Maybe you all have seen it already. I just found out about it more recently. It's called Ted Lasso. And maybe the timing is good because the second season is about to come out. And it's about an American, well, it's an American football coach who essentially gets hired to be a Premier League coach. So going to uh, what the rest of the world calls football. And Jason right. is, is the actor and he is, he plays this folksy character from Kansas, Kansas city somewhere and knows nothing about football and like the setup, it could be so cheesy, you know, but like you can, you know, you can know what's going to happen, right? He's probably going to slowly win people over with his charm and his uh, American Midwestern, you know, just kind of happy go lucky attitude. But, but the writing is so good and it's just one of the funniest shows. My wife and I just laugh out loud at each episode we watch. So Ted Lasso on, it's on Apple TV, which <laughs> my family seems to collect streaming services. Like they used to collect baseball cards. Like we have a million. I wish I, we, we need to get rid of some. I don't even watch that much TV, but yes, it's on Apple TV. So Ted Lasso, very funny. Check it out if you have time. Awesome. Valentino, got some picks? Sure. So I have two picks really. One, I, I kind of just moved to a new house and I'm a, I'm a big uh, hardware guy now. And so I've been slowly looking at how I can make my house automatically do stuff for me and kind of get telemetry data on it. And so I've been playing with this uh, framework called Home Assistant. It's been pretty great so far. It lets me use some of my older Raspberry Pis to automate a ton of stuff for me. Uh, and, and to follow that up, I'll, I want to plug S-Trace here. It's a, it's a great debugging tool that lets you attach to any running process. <laughs> And I was making this app to listen. Uh, I wanted to make a little screen so that I could have a hub and see all the things that are connected in my house. And it kept just shutting off all of a sudden. And I was trying to figure out what was happening. So I reached for S-Trace and uh, just attached 
to the server that was running it. And I kept seeing, oh, that this screen's software kept failing, running out of memory and trying to reconnect, reloading the screen and then failing. Uh, and so it just turned out that the Raspberry Pi I was using wasn't big enough, didn't, didn't have enough juice in it to support what I wanted to do with it with the screen. So it was just running out of, of resources. And so I was able to figure that out pretty quickly with S-Trace. And so now my quest continues to plug more things into my house. Nice. You got the Zigbee going? Yep. That's very cool. Yeah, if you're, if you're going to go to any home, home automation, I highly recommend Zigbee or Z-Wave. Good to know. I've been putting it off for a little bit longer, but one day I really want to be doing all that stuff. Anything else? That's it for me. Cool. All right. Well, I've got a couple. One was brought up during during the show. Uh, just just uh, I'll plug like a couple newsletters here or whatever. But I highly recommend if you if you feel like if you're like Luke and you're like, well, how did you find out about that? Right. Highly right. recommend reading a newsletter or two. Obviously, I've, I've read Ruby Weekly for a very long time. Uh, there's a new one called Ruby Radar which is uh, put out by Andrew Mason and somebody else. Andrew Mason used to be on the show. So I, I'm still in contact with him and some of you are. So I, don't, I trust Andrew and I, you know, so far the content and it's been really good. We'll see. I can definitely recommend Ruby, Ruby Weekly though. There's like a bunch of stuff in there from across the community every week. Just go read a bunch of stuff in there. You'll find about new stuff. So Plus um, one, there, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah, there's other newsletters too. Like I, I start, these are these are two that like I'm paying attention to right now. But uh, there there could be other ones that maybe you like or something. But a newsletter will help you get some of that stuff. And then second, I was playing with something this week, and then actually in today's, well, I get I get Ruby Weekly on Thursdays, but it was in Ruby Weekly today or whatever. And that or there was an article talking about it today, which is from F R U M, which is basically a uh, so it's just another Ruby manager. So RBM, RBM, RVM, uh, CHRuby, like those are the ones that we've had for forever. From is a Ruby manager written in Rust. It's definitely faster. Uh, I haven't had a lot of time with it, you know, because I've only started playing with it this week. But it's definitely faster. I, I have no complaints. I've been very happy. Uh, first of all, I love RBM. I've been very happy with it throughout the years. I've used it, you know, back when I, before I started doing servers using Docker. I would actually use RBM uh, instead of some of the others. The only other, I, I stopped using RVM on servers. It just is such a problem child for me. Uh, but the other one that I would use on servers occasionally would be CHRuby. So those are the two that like I've been a champion of over the years. Um, nothing against RVM. I think it's fine. You know, if you already have it installed and things like that, like I just, I personally just didn't like it. So, but this one, anyway, we'll see how it goes. But so far it's been good. It's really fast. Um, not that I can really tell that much of a difference. I can I can definitely tell that it's faster, like loading some stuff. I really, because I don't have problems with RBM, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to be able to tell a large difference, but it's definitely, it's worth checking out. So it was cool. All right, Fabio, did you have any picks for us? Yeah, I have three picks. So the first one is the gen that we wrote at WeTransfer. Actually, I'm the main contributor. The name is WT Active Record Index Spy. We can use this gem to uh, spy uh, pieces of code if which are running queries in the database to see if they are using a proper uh, index. For example, if you run a qu query and there are no index to cover this query, the 
the gem will raise an error. Uh, you you can use it in your test uh, test suite, and there is a spec matcher that you can use to use around a, a method. It works better with MySQL. It it, it supports Postgres as well, but it didn't it doesn't work so. Uh, uh, very well with with Postgres. We need some contribution from for from someone who knows more Postgres than me. So the next pick is series of posts by Thoughtbot. They are talking about the debugging. So they explain lots lots of things. For example, how a process a process then you can use to like a scientific process to understand what is the problem, to list your assumptions, to prove the assumptions, to test uh, possible scenarios, to fix problems. So it's very interesting. I, I discovered that listening to the uh, Bike Shed pod, uh, podcast a few episodes ago, and I definitely recommend it. And the third pick is using Fitbit. I, I like Pratt's sports. I like running, cycling, what, what else? And then my healthcare provider here in the Netherlands, they, there is a program, the name of the company is Vitality, I think. And they, they give me the option to buy a Fitbit. And every month, if I, every week, if I continue practicing sports and then I need to submit the data to them, then I receive a cashback. So in two years, they will pay me the, the Fitbit. And every week, I'm receiving like five euros because I'm practicing sports. So I can, I'm, I'm earning money to practice sports. So it's, it's very cool. And that's it. That's a, that's a sweet deal. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Cool. All right. Well, Fabio, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you or anything, how do they do that? Yeah, I have a Twitter profile. I don't use it too much, but sometimes I, I write things related to the gems that I contribute or the sometimes the posts that I, I write and the the name is Fabio Perella. It's my name and my surname. And yeah, I, I have also a blog. It's like a personal website, and it's actually a Git GitHub pages. So fabioperella.github.io. Awesome, sweet. And we'll make sure that we get those in the show notes and everything too. Okay. So cool. Alrighty. Well, thanks everybody for coming out and listening to us today. We'll see you on the next episode. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.